The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. At 40 Strategy, we work with top leaders and CEOs about helping them get to their next destination. And we help them make sure that their teams are aligned to get to the right place and working on maximizing their people, process, and systems so they can get to where they want to go. If you want to learn more, please go to 40strategy.com. And from there, we're going to talk about, we always like to do a shout out. And our shout out here is to a common friend that we have is Dan Fagella. Dan is a AI guru and expert and who recommended Manny, who is another one of these. And you can learn more about Dan Fagella at danfagella.com. Thanks again, Dan, for the recommendation. And we're going to now uh, talk about Manny. Manny is the founder and CEO of BigPlasma.ai, a company helping industrial companies and manufacturers build new data products products and automate work with analytics and machine learning as well. Before launching Big Plasma, Manny was the head of AI product and lead data scientist at Uptake, an AI industrial IoT startup, which was listed number three on Forbes, most promising, which was one of the most promising AI companies in America in 2019. Prior to joining Uptake, Manny held the role of investment strategist for FlexShares, a product line of Northern Trust Asset Management. At FlexShares, Manny designed and launched quantitative financial products totaling $13 billion in assets under management. Many earned his BS in finance, which he received honors from DePaul University and a data science specialization from John Hopkins University. And he has passed all three levels of the CFA or Chartered Financial Analyst Series. And Manny, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Hey, Carl. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. So we, we touched a little bit about what you do Give, give the audience a little bit bigger, bigger flavor behind your company and, and what you do on a regular basis. Sure. The idea is that there is a lot of value that can be generated from data. And we are awash in data more so than ever. My specialty is around IoT sensors, uh, which are becoming cheaper and more readily available. And that means more data. But as I mentioned earlier, it also means more value, more value for companies that are able to harness this data to drive down costs, to streamline operations, but also more value for customers in that companies can take these data streams and create new data products or enhance their current product lineup and, and generate more value for their end customers. So I work primarily with mid-sized companies, manufacturers, industrials in, in helping them do that and helping them launch new AI products, new connected smart products that help them tap into that trend that we're seeing of generating more value from data 
and creating more share of wallet for with with their customers. And and when you were describing midsize earlier, you said approximately about 500k to 1 billion dollars in revenues. Is that is that type of size company? Yeah, I'd say half a billion to roughly $2 billion in revenue. That's kind of the sweet spot for us. That's the right size company that we like to, to work with. In, in, past life, in a past life, in, a past, uh, in my previous company, I was working with Fortune 1000 companies, sort of you know, big, 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 big time organizations and helping them with similar transitions and, and transformations. And with Big Plasma AI, my focus is on smaller, mid-sized companies and giving them the same type of services and capabilities that I, I did for, for, for bigger organizations. So from, it's interesting, clearly organizations had more money, right? And assets in the Fortune 1000, they, they've been leading edge and, and doing this for, for a while now. Is it been relatively new with this mid-sized client of them getting into artificial intelligence or have they been in it a long time, but they're having a hard time harnessing the data, which is part of the solution you're trying to provide? It's it's a little bit newer for smaller size companies. I think it's also a little bit more challenging in that you don't have the same level of resources that you might have at a Fortune 1000 company. It's probably harder to attract the type of talent that you need, the data engineering talent, the data science talent that you need to get some of these initiatives off the ground. So those are some of the headwinds, I would say, when it comes to deploying new analytic services, if you're a smaller company, the, the, the tailwinds or what's beneficial is that you have a little bit less bureaucracy. You tend to have more of a flatter organization. And when the leader or the leaders of an organization say that they want to bet heavily on analytics, AI, IOT, what have you, then it translates into action a little bit more, a little bit faster. And so I, I really like that about working with smaller organizations. It's just just faster to that first model, faster to that first product. It's a, and it's a little bit quicker to, to, to get there, which, which I happen to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm curious from a, and once again, don't give any specific names here, but in terms of like investment size and, and duration of time that a company of this size is looking at, are they putting, you know, and, and we're talking because if we're 500K to $200 billion revenue company, right? What, what percentage, if you may, of the revenues or what size and dollars are they putting into like projects like this to actually have enough investment so they're actually getting a positive return on investment from it? Yeah, that's a, a good question. I would say that it depends on where you are on in the product life cycle of a particular initiative. If you're very early on, then you're probably just going to take a lot of small steps and you're going to do some experimenting and see where you're going to get traction or where you think uh, you might have the most potential to impact your business. And so early on, if you're just doing that, that's a pretty reasonable investment. I'd say anywhere between 100K to, to uh, 250K for uh, a, a quarter's worth of work in terms of trying to think about what potential business opportunities exist with AI, machine learning, analytics, and data products. And then if you're a little bit later in your your in, in, in your maturity, 
then you're going to be thinking about productionalizing some of these solutions and some of these products. There, it gets it's it's a little bit hazier. There's not really an average amount. It's really tied to the value that you think you're going to be unlocking for the end customer and the value that you think you're going to be adding to your overall company, to the organization from a competitive standpoint. Things that you'll be investing in there are, are, are considerations like infrastructure, getting access to certain data sets, the people, you'll need data engineers, data scientists, data analysts. And so that can that has a big range in terms of investment. But again, you'll, you'll be a little bit later in, in, in the cycle and you'll have a better sense of the value that you're going to unlock for the organization. And you can just match that to, to the cost and, and help you think about the ROI and, and when that payback is going to happen. So let's go down to some like practical solutions here, right? And once again, don't necessarily have to give specifics for any one customer that you're working with, but what would be an example of where maybe a company hasn't historically been in this, but they see the value? Give like a practical example of like where this with quote unquote AI is all of a sudden going to drive value for either themselves or for their customers. Sure. A classic example that I'm seeing out in, in the marketplace is with manufacturers that have sold, let's call them non-connected devices. So if you go to a medical office, you might see certain devices, they may not be connected. Okay. That's an opportunity to add sensors, to add connectivity and to increase the value of uh, that you're, pr you're providing to that end user. You can do that by providing analytics. You can do that by anticipating when things are gonna fail. You can do that by providing new services that pull data from different sources within that ecosystem and providing a new solution to that end customer. So there are a number of ways, number of ways for you to think about that and to do that. So you have a, a number of these companies that are still trying to add that connectivity to their product lineup. I think there's a lot of potential for that. And it's a great, a great way to get started with, with data and with analytics. So there's some significant challenges, right? On, on It's like just adding on an IoT chip, right, to a product. It, it's not as simple as that, right? You, you know, you have to you know, do that. You have to add it onto the product. But then you have to actually ask, why are we tracking this in the first place? And what information is going to be bringing back and forth in between that? So when you talk about some of this investment, when you're talking about some of those dollars, is that the dollars of just the people? Or is that actually some of the dollars of actually adding on the chip so it can be tracked, so they can get the information data and bring it back and forth, and then to have it be something in a usable format, right? So a customer can make decisions off of it. Right. That, that's, that's right, Carl. When you're thinking about these type of investments, you want to be thinking about the hardware. What additional sensors are you going to need and how are you going to add them to your existing uh, machinery and products? Is it going to be retrofitted? Is it something that you're going to add when you manufacture it and you ship it? Those are all consider considerations that you want to think about. You also have to think about the connectivity. How are you going to get this data to the cloud or, or some other mechanism? Maybe you, ha you have it somewhere on-prem and then you get it some other way. So you have to think about how you get it back to, your, to your, your space so that you can do some work with it and analyze it and do other interesting things with it. You have to think about the people, the folks that are going to be processing the data, the data scientists. You have to think about your product people that are going to be looking at this data to think about how they can improve 
the product and what additional services you can build for the customer. So those are all different things that you might overlook when you're thinking about AI, machine learning analytics for, for these new connected devices. What is the biggest hurdle or obstacle that an organization runs to when they try to implement this for the first time? I think it's getting through the initial phase of not seeing much come out of your, your investment. So you have to, this is sort of a something, you, this is sort of an intermediate type of play where you're going to reap a lot of benefits, I'd say in a year's time, in two years time, for sure, five years time, 10 years time. But the first couple of quarters, it's maybe somewhat unclear in terms of why you might be making that initial investment. So there's some upfront cost that has to, has to, that has to be, um, you know, you have to write out. So it's that initial hesitation, I think, of, of knowing that this data is going to be valuable for you, that it's important for you to start thinking about new ways to generate value for your end customer and knowing that it is going to create a competitive advantage for you and your business and having the leadership to 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 bet uh, bet on it and also to weather that initial payback period at, where you might get some skepticism and some hesitation. Are our organizations typically coming up with that long-term ROI, right? To go, okay, we're making a bet here, right? Right. There's a, there's an investment that we're making on the long-term return behind it. Are they going out and and doing a long-term you know, value stream, so to speak, on, on how it goes through, or sometimes just people going, hey, we're going to make this investment. We're not quite sure, right? Because I think it's true. We're not quite sure what the return we're going to get out of. What are you seeing, you know, at the beginning of the strategy level when people consider this? I think it's important to conceptually appreciate why the data is going to be important for your business. So you should have some themes if you are, for example, if you're manufacturing vehicles, if you're Tesla or if you are John Deere, you know that eventually you're going to want to offer some sort of autonomous option for your vehicle because that's something that's going to create value for your customer. So thematically, you should have a sense of what that looks like. And maybe you don't have the full ROI numbers. Well, at least you won't have the return because that's so long term in nature but you'll at least have a, a sense and, and some conviction that this is this makes logical sense for you to be going down this route. Uh, if you have some numbers on it, great, but I would say that more importantly is just a, a rationale and an understanding across key players within the organization that this is strategically important for the business and that it makes sense that we're going to be deriving value from these data assets in this in these spots. And it, it makes sense that we're going to want to provide these types of analytical options and products and services for these customers. And that's in line with our core value proposition as a company. And I think if you have that in place, that is generally sufficient. That's kind of your, your two-year, five-year horizon. And then Near term, you have to start with with short term sprints and 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 tackling some of these hypotheses and seeing what data and and what observations you get from doing that, what pushback you get, what challenges you get, and that gives you some sense of how how accurate you are with those broader uh, thematic assumptions. Yeah. 
So I love, we're going to touch on the autonomous vehicle part here in a minute, because that was kind of top of mind for you when we first got on and prior to the call, because that's the type of fun stuff, right? And it's a real challenge right now because of, of some of the issues of being able to find in supply chain, right? Being able to find truck drivers to be able to move things in and out of port. So, so I want to talk about that in just a moment, but let, let's take a smaller step down below that, which, you know, there's, there's the big co, right? Fortune 1000 plus companies. There's this mid tier that you're talking about. And then there's companies that are below that, right? And, and they don't have the investment opportunities necessarily to put 150K million dollars, right? And that's just, that was, a, that was a quarterly view, right? That you were showing in something. How can they start playing or aligning with larger companies to get the data that they need so they can actually start taking some use off of this of these technologies that are there a first key step i think is to instill within your your strategy and and your long-term exercises and mechanisms whatever it is that you're using to to lay out that long-term view for your organization is to marry that with some sort of data discipline or or layer in ideas in terms of where AI and analytics and data is going to come into play, how it's going to help you meet those, those strategic goals. I think if you do that, that's a first, uh, that's a good first step. And then secondly, you want to think about where your existing data assets are right now. There are a lot of organizations that don't appreciate how much data they're already generating right now with their existing products, services, and with the service and the, and the, and the services that they're using as well. And so if you can manage to get a sense of what those pools of data are right now, if you can think about how to aggregate those and to make it a habit to continually leverage that data to make better decisions and to inform your product development and to think about how the, the success of your customer, that is going to go a long way in time. As you grow, you'll get more resources and you'll get more opportunities to expand your footprint in that direction. But more than anything, like you, you want to make it a habit that you continually think about the data that you're generating, the data assets that you're, that, that you're putting together, and also you're, you're brainstorming and you're looking for opportunities to turn those data assets into new revenue opportunities. And if you instill that in leadership, in some of your, your, your high potential managers and leaders, you'll naturally get to the point where you're doing this automatically. But that I would say is a, is a good place to start. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So, all right, let's talk about some of the fun stuff, right? you you mentioned before what's top of mind. You said, Oh, I'm, I'm reading about autonomous vehicles. How far away I mean, I know today technically cars can do it, but how far away from this is being what I'd call "quote unquote" mainstream? So, I would, I would, I would, I would rephrase that slightly and say, how far are we from seeing it out in the real world in a serious way, and then how far away are we from seeing it be the dominant way of transportation for most drivers? And so, the the latter is a little bit hazier. I think that's probably five years out seven years out there's always some resistance that you get as you're rolling out new technology people have been saying we're two years away from from autonomous driving everything but 
that always gets pushed back because of technology and because of regulations and things of that nature. So I'd say that's a little bit harder to, to talk about. In terms of when we see in it, when we see it in a significant way, I think we are probably two years away from seeing a sizable, significant portion of, 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 of drivers and cars being driven autonomously out in the real world. And a lot of that is going to be coming from Tesla. Um, Tesla is probably, I'd say, the, the furthest along in getting us there. There's another company called Waymo, Waymo that's backed by Google. But I think the Tesla approach is a little bit more practical and it's probably going to get us there faster. And I would expect for you to see that fully rolled out either this year or next year, 2023. So that's when you'll see Tesla roll out the full self-driving functionality on their cars and where you'll just put a destination on where you want to go and the, the car will automatically drive itself there. They are they released the beta version of this uh, this past year and there are a couple of cool videos of folks posting how the car is automatically driving itself through fairly crazy terrain like this very mountainous loopy roads and passes and it seems to be doing that well. I think they're going to they're going to they're going to do that for some time, get some more data and when they feel comfortable they'll roll it out to a bigger chunk of their their user base. But I think that can happen in the next uh, two years. And then once that happens, people will get more comfortable with it. You'll have more rules and regulations that are accommodating to this new technology, which always takes some time. And then after that, you'll see it proliferate more in the mainstream, which is going to be really exciting. It's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. But I, I really like this use case because I feel like I feel like AI for a, for a long time has been regulated to the digital space. So I like to think about the first wave of AI being the, in, in the internet space, in the in the space of bits, zeros and ones, and with the, with the comp- with companies like Google, Facebook, uh, uh, and these these companies have done a good job of introducing the public to AI. Google, of course, the search engine leverages a lot of AI machine learning. Amazon, you go on there, you have amazing recommendations, Netflix, things of that nature. Tesla is proving that you can leverage AI in the real world, which is typically much, much harder to do. For one, you're not starting off with a a digital landscape. Everything has to be taken from an analog world. So the, the visuals, what's happening out in the world, it has to be processed through cameras. It has to be digitized. It has to be vectorized, turned into zeros and ones. You have to pass that through a machine learning model. Then you have to serve a prediction all in near real time without any lag or jitter. And you have some real world consequences. If a Tesla autonomous vehicle misfires and they, they, they can hurt someone, they could have an accident. And that's, that's real skin in the game. And so if Tesla can pull this off, I think it will mark a major milestone in, in AI and machine learning. And, and I think when we write the, the, the history books on AI, because I think it's going to be a major technology for humanity in general, it, when Tesla is able to fully launch its autonomous vehicle out into the real world, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be one of the key milestones that we're going to look back on and say, yeah, that's when we knew that AI was for real. And then after that, it just got really crazy. <laughs> So how far are we away from Uber vehicles being, you know, Uber-like, you know, where it doesn't have to be Uber itself, 
but for for passenger vehicles to get picked up like in a taxi type situation from an airport to go to a restaurant or from restaurant to restaurant or bar to bar, whatever it might be, how far away are we from that happening where a vehicle is pulling up that doesn't have a driver in it and is picking us up to bring us to the next location? Or perhaps is the driver just being a host, so for lack of a better term, right? They're just there to watch it. What What have you heard from the predictions from that standpoint? That is a good question. I would guess five years. I think most optimistic technologists would tell you that's right around the corner, two years. But I would say take your optimistic guess, which is two years, double it. Just because you always run into regulations, hurdles, things that you you hadn't expected there is a, a bad accident that, that happens and people get a little bit freaked out and you have to investigate it. So I would say five years is probably a, a good timeline for that. Okay. The truck side of this. Okay. You were re- Daimler, you got a bunch of leading companies that are now doing that side. And one of the biggest challenges right now, in the supply chain is actually literally finding drivers to take, take the 18 wheelers, right. From one place to another. How close is that from, you know, there's so much difference of the long hauling, right? And then there, then there's the as a kind of the last mile, so to speak. You know, on on dr- bringing a truck in to actually deliver goods. What have you heard from that perspective, and and how far away is that from what you've read? Good question. I'm a little bit less clear on the semi truck side of 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 the business. I if I would guess five years is probably a good a good baseline to aim for as well. If not shorter, I feel like if it's all commercial, that's probably going to be a little bit more streamlined. So I take that back. I'll I'll say it's three years away from 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 you seeing that. That's just my basic guess. But again, I haven't really been tracking the developments there as closely as I have been on the more the more passenger side of things. No problem. So well, let's go back to the passenger side for a minute, and and let's just make these assumptions on Uber just as an example, right? And there's a lot of people that their jobs is being an Uber driver, right? So let's just make an assumption that. 10 years from now, right? The vast majority of Ubers are now quote unquote autonomous vehicles. Where do all those people go to work now? Are those jobs all gone a decade from now? I, so this is always the, I, I think this is the ex, I don't want to say existential, but this is the, 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 the prevailing question when it comes to technology. Almost, you can all, you can say that about anything, a steam engine, electricity, the, you know, the, the, the typewriter, <laughs> you know, back, you know, people probably would say that about, you know, typewriters that would, that would take, that would take notes for folks. You know, you, I read history quite a bit and you always have a secretary there typing notes for all these folks. And you have sometimes three or four, what happened to their jobs? I think generally what you see for, for different types of technologies is that those jobs, yes, they go away, but other jobs present themselves jobs that we would have never thought existed in the past, seemingly uh, a pickup. And so you'll have new jobs that are created because of these technologies and what those are. It's, it's hard for us to see until we get there. But if, the, if you follow the trend of what's happened with past technological trends, that's what, what typically 
happens. There are other instances too where we where we think there's going to be a loss of jobs. There actually really isn't. There's just there's there's there continues to be an expansion of jobs. The classic case of this is with tellers. So if you know if you were to go back 30 years ago and say like, hey, what's going to happen to all the tellers with these ATMs and digital banking? and be, me being able to access all my banking online, oh, you're for sure going to see a drop off in bank tellers. Well, if you look at the data, that, that's not the case. You've seen an increase in bank tellers. That's been pretty pretty steady for the last 50 years. So how do you explain that? I, don't, I think it's very difficult for us to make those guesses which jobs are going to continue to climb, what new jobs are going to present themselves. We know that there's going to be disruption. We know that people may have to reinvent themselves, but that's that's par for the course whenever you're talking about innovation and technology. It's just something that a society has to be good at dealing with and individuals have to be good at dealing with and adapting to it. But my base case is, is that there are going to be different types of jobs, more interesting jobs that are going to spring up because of these, these new technologies. And we're going to have to wait and see what those look like. I like that answer better than some of the ones I've heard, uh, Manny. So how do you measure success with your clients on a consistent basis? For me, the, the number one way to measure success for me is, is the, the number of products and models and services that we get to production for our clients. I say that because it's actually very difficult to deploy a new AI service and product. Uh, you have to think about the technology. The technology has to be there. It has to be 10x, whatever it is, it, it, it is already out in the marketplace. You have to think about the internal politics and how do you nav and how do you manage people's expectations, leaderships, the frontline people. And you have to think about the marketplace, whether or not this new technology is going to be accepted by the by customers and how they want to pay for it. It's super difficult. It's super complicated. So when you actually get something to production and it seems to be getting some traction, oh man, that is like such a Super Bowl win in my mind. And that's my number, I'd say my number one metric of success is, is, is how often we get services and, and models to production. And then, you know, from there you can think about, well, how often we get prototypes up and running, how often we can kick those off and, 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 and how many data sets do we have? How many models do we, do we have running? Those are all really interesting metrics that are, that are leading indicators of that lagging success. But to me, when we get services to production, that's a, that's a, that's a touchdown right there. That's, that's a spike the ball type of moment. Cool. Cool. I love that. Love that. All right. So let's, let's always like to move to the personal side a little bit, man. You got a lot going on, right? And how are you keeping yourself going and functioning and effective at a leadership level? What are the habits that you do to help, help uh, keep yourself going? I think the number one habit is, is continually monitoring inputs and outputs for you as a performer. Now I'm a former data scientist. I'm a very quantitative person. My view is that the two things that you care about the most every day is your overall energy level, whether you're in a good mood, whether you're in a bad mood, and your and your overall mood and you know your disposition. How do you feel? Are you optimistic? Are you in a down? Are you in a little bit lower? And so those are the two things that you want to be tracking every day. And then that's that's I would say that's your output. That's what you're that's what you care about. But then appreciating that that really is a function of your inputs, and it's generally the inputs from the previous day. Your inputs being how well did you sleep, what did you eat, did you exercise, and did you practice good mindset 
techniques or habits. And so if, if you can, if you have that framework in your mind that the outputs from today are really a function of yesterday's inputs and you're tracking that and you say, oh, I feel kind of down today. I wonder why that is. Oh, yesterday I had, you know, this really bad meal late at night. And I also watched, been watched this terrible show till one o'clock in the morning. Okay, that's that's probably explains it. And interesting. I'll try to do less of that and see how my mood changes the next day. And so if you continually track that and you're and you're reflecting on it and you're appreciating that 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 connection, I think that goes a long way and, and it'll it'll pretty clearly show you some of the areas that you need to improve on that maybe uh, you've been neglecting for whatever reason. And it, it goes a long way in helping you get through rough patches, I think, when you can when you have that type of framing. Is there a specific habit you're focusing on here in, in 2022 to help that something you've noticed you, you've been lacking at, but you're trying to create a better habit on it for this, this upcoming year? Yes. For me, it's sleep hygiene. I've been slacking a little bit on the sleep hygiene front. To be fair, I am the father of two younger kids. So uh, I, it, I think it's, it's challenging from that front. But that said, things that I'm improving, that I'm trying to improve on when it comes to sleep hygiene is going to bed on time, winding down, minimizing my screen time late at night, doing some more meditation, more reading at night, and not trying to eat past a certain time. I think that that seems to help me. So just every every day, like asking myself like, hey, how was my sleep hygiene today on a scale of negative two to positive two? And how do I feel today? You know, positive two to negative two. And then just try to make note of that uh, every day and see how well, how well that connection holds up. Are you keeping that in a spreadsheet, Manny? I keep it in a, in a, a program called Notion, which is, I guess you would call it like an interactive note-taking software application. So I really like Notion and I use it. I have a database in there where I track all of these different metrics in a, in a, in a, on a regular basis. Do you have now? Okay. I'm really intrigued now. Do you have like graphs? Can you see your, your tracking and it's showing like, so you got that plus two minus two, you tracking that along the way and see. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. You should. Yeah. That's uh, a certain, like, I think you want to keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate it. Have your, give yourself four options. You know, plus two, plus one, negative one, negative two, and all the factors that you care about. Uh, as I mentioned, sleep, you know, inputs, and then on your output side, your overall mood and your overall energy level. I track focus as well. How lazy, like how, how easy was it for me to get in the zone? I think if, I think that is a really strong indicator of, in terms of how your overall day is going to look. I just feel like whenever I'm, I'm able to get into the zone and, and, and for like two hours and really get into my work, I feel like I've been doing the right things leading up to that point. And I just want to do more of that. Yeah. Love it. That's really good stuff. So how do you measure success going to all these things? So how do you measure success right now in your personal life with these type of things? I think the, the, there's probably two things that I would look at is, is one, the amount of, of carefree time that I have during a week. Like how many hours can I just spend with my boys, just really appreciating them and 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 just paying attention to them and and interacting with them at a, you know, at a at a at a deep level, and, and just be focused on them and not have to think about anything else. Like I think to the extent that I can do that via flexibility in my schedule and 
managing my business and not having to worry about putting out fires. As you know, as an entrepreneur, you're on call 24 hours, seven days a week. So to the extent that you can say like, oh, this whole weekend I was able to spend with my family and I didn't worry about anything else. I was just fully focused on them and it was high quality. It was great. They're at a young age where I'm, you know, I'm never going to see them at this age again. And I just really soaked it up. That, you know, that to me is, is winning. That's, that's a W for me. And, and the more I can get to that, the better. That's that. I love it. That is really good insights. I, I love your reflection on that. So I'll always like to ask all our guests, Manny, what is a book that you'd recommend for our audience? There are a lot of books that I would recommend. I'd say one that I recently read that I really liked and I would love to share with your audience and I would love to hear from your audience in terms of whether or not they've read it or if they read it, what they think. But 11 Rings by mm. Phil Jackson. I Somebody recommended this to me. I said, okay, you know, basketball, I don't know. But they said, hey, this is actually a really good leadership book, a really good business book. You got to read it. Yep, and it I, is. It's, a, it's excellent. It's an excellent book. I agree with you. Oh my. And I, I, yeah. I, I started reading it and I could not put it down. Yes. It's, it was about basketball, but basketball was just really the context, the, the, the milieu, but it was about leadership. It's, it's, it's about how to bring a, a team together, how to win, how to lose, <laughs> what makes you different. There's a lot of spiritual stuff in there too. Like I, 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 I didn't appreciate what they called. I think they call Phil Jackson, like the Zen master or something. And I always thought that was kind of weird. And here you appreciate why they, they, he has that, that nickname. And so, and it's also contrasted with the Bulls, Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, the Lakers, Kobe Bryant, the uh, Shaq. It's, oh my gosh, it was like, it was an amazing book. It was so good. So I would recommend folks go out and read it and uh, reach out to me and let me know what you thought. Cool. Awesome. Awesome book recommendation. So where, Manny, where can people learn and find more about you? LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn under Manny Bernabe. Pretty active there. You can visit uh, my company's website at bigplasma.ai. And then you can also check out my own personal website at mannybernabe.com. Cool. That is awesome. Manny, this has been a pleasure to have you on the, the Measure Success podcast. Thank you so much for making time today. Thanks for having me on the show, Carl. Absolutely. And to everyone else, wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.